This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 29, Leviticus chapter 16 through 19. Chapter 16 begins with God speaking to Moshe after, quote, the death of the two sons of Aharon when they came near before the presence of Adonai and died. God instructs Moshe about issues of occupational safety, proper uniform and posture, as well as the preparation of relevant near offerings, especially the bull offered as a chatat for himself and his family and the near offering on behalf of the people. Two hairy goats, which he is to determine by lots which one is for God and which one is for Azazel. One for God is offered up as a chatat along with the bull, and the hairy goat for Azazel is basically brought to the edge of the wilderness, hands are laid and confessions are made, and it is set free. Chapter 16 concludes with the establishment of the Yom Kippur Holy Day, the tenth day of the seventh month, which is Tishrei if you start counting, as the Torah does from Nisan. It is a day of affliction and atonement for all sins, a Shabbat Shabbaton, or what Mitt Romney affectionately called in 2008, We had a double Guantanamo. Chapter 17 lays down the franchise agreement vis-a-vis -vis meat slaughtering. In other words, no meat is to be slaughtered outside the confines of the dwelling. This keeps the Kohanim fed, but also prevents the offering of near offerings to goat demons and the attendant whoring that near offerings to goat demons involves. Anyone who slaughters in violation of the franchise agreement is cut off from the Jewish people. And since we're on the topic of slaughtering animals, God tells Moshe to tell the Jews not to eat blood. Anyone who eats blood, God will, quote, set his face against the person, and he will be cut off from the Jewish people. God goes on to explain why one should avoid their steaks bloody rare. It is because, quote, for the life of the flesh, it is in the blood. And this rule applies to everyone, Jew and non-Jew alike. And it applies to the hunt as well. You're to pour out the blood onto the ground and cover it with dust. And in case you weren't paying attention, God says it again. Do not eat blood. Don't do it. Don't eat the blood. Don't eat it. Got it? Okay. Chapter 18 shifts gears just a little bit from all the talk about slaughtering and blood and meat to sex. All the talk about sex of various kinds is prefaced by a social admonition. Whatever the Egyptians did or the Canaanites did, you don't do it. Got it? And the list of don't do's begins with the obvious prohibition against incest, but they are also geared to keep males from preying upon female members of their families, or females in general, as well as keeping men from sleeping their way into social strife in extended families. So, for example, a man can't sleep with two sisters, or a mother and a daughter, or various other extended family combinations that have been presented on afternoon talk shows. In addition to the earlier ban on the goat demon, this chapter introduces a ban on Molech, who, to whom the Amorites apparently sacrificed their children. Verse 22, beloved of religious fundamentalists of all stripes, condemns anal sex between men as an abomination. 
Verse 23 prohibits bestiality. Violation of these prohibitions will not only make you Tameh, but also make the land of Israel Tameh, which will prompt the land of Israel to vomit you out as it vomited out the abominable people who inhabited it before you. Chapter 19 begins with the Holiness Code, the commandment of, quote, Holy are you to be, for holy am I, Adonai, your God. Uh, many of the commandments in this section are punctuated with, I am Adonai, your God. So, if you were unsure why you should look out for the more vulnerable members of your community instead of exploiting them, the answer is, I am Adonai, your God. And if you were wondering why you shouldn't steal or lie or deal falsely in business or perjure yourself or withhold your neighbor's property or thieve or withhold the wages of your laborers or pervert the legal system or slander people or hold grudges or I am Adonai, your God. And then there is the slight shift again, not one as dramatic as before, where if we recall the brother P touch tendency of P in Leviticus, with clear labeling and categorizing, it makes sense that we would get to a prohibition of blending and crossbreeding of animals or mixing seeds for sowing. It would also apply to the blending of fabrics such as wool and linen before getting back to the sex. Particularly a man who sleeps with a woman destined for another man who has yet to be redeemed. So he avoids the death penalty meted out to adulterers, but he must pay compensation and bring in a sham. But then we're back to some agricultural prohibitions and personal grooming with a ban on tattooing, head shaving, or beard trimming. Why? I am Adonai, your God. And you should not allow your daughter to become a whore, and you should keep Shabbat and avoid ghost whisperers or spirit guides. And, and if you're on the bus and an elderly person gets on, you should give them your seat and your respect. Why? I am Adonai, your God. And uh, you shouldn't uh, mistreat refugees because uh, you were a stranger in Egypt. And if that isn't good enough reason, I am Adonai, your God. And be sure to keep your weights and measures accurate because I am Adonai, your God. And if you ever wonder why you should keep any of the laws or regulations herewith, it's because you guessed it. I am Adonai, your God. So you better behave yourself, because there's a lot to talk about this week, and we have a special guest, Dr. J. Michelson, author of God vs. Gay, The Religious Case for Equality, and the upcoming Evolving Dharma, Meditation, Buddhism, and the Next Generation of Enlightenment. So let's get to it. <laughs> I'd like to welcome uh, Jay Michelson to Tanakhcast. It's a great honor and privilege because I've actually referred to your your work before in the show. So thanks for coming on. And My pleasure. Yeah, it's 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 really amazing to have you. Um, and uh, I guess I could start by saying that that the portion of, of Vikra we're going to talk about of Leviticus is probably you know the most like infamous section of the Torah of the whole Tanakh, probably. Would yeah, you... which is funny because it's it's really pretty obscure uh, what it what it deals with. Um, obviously, there's one line, Leviticus 18:22, that's been interpreted or misinterpreted as having to do with uh, gay people. Mm -hmm. uh, but really, you know, the whole section that this is a part of is really all about purity and cultic purity and skin diseases and all sorts of very much you know ritual cultic laws that clearly have nothing to do with family values. Mm -hmm. So, like, uh, I mean, I we. We talked uh, in Tanakhcast before about the various flows. Um, so, do you want to provide a little context for, 
in terms of because we talked about purity as well, but I mean, obviously, we've been talking about it more broadly. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have to dial back to at least Leviticus 10, you know, like eight chapters before Leviticus 18, mm -hmm. which really kind of kicks off what scholars call the holiness code. And, you know, there's the debates about what the permutation the, and the parameters of the holiness code are. How big is it exactly? Where is it? But, you know, this section of Leviticus uh, 10 to 25, you know, is roughly understood as being about a certain kind of ritual holiness that uh, was written by the priestly writer, uh, one of the one of the sources of the uh, of the five books of Moses, according to the heretical new criticism that that everyone believes who has a degree in this. <laughs> and uh, and, you know, it reflects a very particular agenda, you know, just by way of framing, you know, in there's a famous passage in Isaiah where Isaiah says, God doesn't want your sacrifices. God wants you to be a better person. Mm -hmm. You know, that was overturning a clear biblical statement that God wants your sacrifice. Right. And, you know, so the Bible itself has many different iterations of what this religion is supposed to be. And in this section of Leviticus, religion is about uh, purity and impurity, cultic purity, holiness, the worship in the in the uh, sanctuary, you know, later the temple. And it really gets going back in Leviticus 10, which is the portion, uh, the, the, the story of Nadav and Avihu, uh, the, the children of Aaron who maybe they get drunk or it's not quite clear. Anyway, they, they offer some kind of some kind of foreign fire, you know, which is now that's become known as avodazaraz, like the, the, the term for idolatry. Mm -hmm. So they do something wrong and they die. It's not even clear how they die, whether God, you know, smites them, since God likes smiting or whether it's, um, you know, they're consumed by their own uh, strange fire. But what then happens for chapter after chapter after chapter are these forms of purity. Right. And it seems really clear, I mean, you know, 47 verses on which animals you can eat and which are abominations, you know, the word that sometimes gets used against gay people, and and uh, 57 verses uh, about quarantine from certain kinds of emissions. And over and over again, this part of the of the Torah says you should be able to discern, to separate between pure and impure, uh, and you should discern, discern, separate, separate, separate. It says it over and over again, mm -hmm. and eventually we get the point uh, that... We're supposed to be, we the Israelites are supposed to be different from all those other people. Uh, we're supposed to separate between the pure and impure. They don't. Um, and anything that they do cultically, we're not supposed to do. And, you know, this then comes in into these, these areas of for, forbidden sexual relations in a number of ways. I mean, the most explicit is actually this word that's translated abomination, the word toiva, mm -hmm. which means, uh, you know, it's, it's I am. I, um, enough of a Bible geek that, you know, I did the concordance and came up with all, you know, 104 times that the word toiva is used in, in the Tanakh and went through every single one of them. And you can Google me and the word abomination. There'll probably be some false hits there too, but, <laughs> but you'll, then, you'll then get to that. And you know, almost entirely, 98% of the time, uh, toiva refers to a ritual uh, sin. So idolatry, soothsaying, witchcraft, things like that. Mm -hmm. Not anything ethical, and not and and it specifically says that you know Leviticus eighteen twenty two that this form of sexual relationship is a toiva, which there's no reason textually to say that except to link it to the eight chapters which have gone before, and you know the reason this is relevant and not just you know biblical uh, field pull for people who are either orthodox or you know really care about this stuff. The reason it's relevant is that you know there are people today who are really suffering intensely in Christian and Jewish communities mm -hmm. uh, because of the misunderstanding of this word toiva. And so, you know, you started by saying this like the most infamous verse. This is really obscure stuff. I mean, this is stuff which only a few hapless PhDs should really care about, you know, people like me. <laughs> um, 
And yet, you know, in, in the in the LGBT activism world, this is what's one of what's called the clobber texts. Yeah, you get hammered with it. Yeah, you get clobbered over the head over and over again. And and sometimes it's not usually quite literal, but it is, you know, severe, the kind of harm that people are, are exposed to because of uh, this very weird uh, chap- part, chapter in Leviticus, which has nothing to do with what we think it does. So what are we supposed to do with this verse? I mean, if it's if it's uh, if it's fairly obscure, right? And it's you know, and if we had it sort of assigned to its appropriate size and scope and relevance in our lives, you know, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to process this? So the first thing I think is to is to like answer two questions. The first is is really why we care, um, and you know, liberal Jews don't care because we have to square the circle. We're not trying to make sure that every word in the Torah is correct and you know, and, and that kind of thing, or be an apologist, or somehow I want to, you know, have my, have my God and have sex with men too, or something like that. <laughs> you know, we, we care about it because it, it is used as a weapon and we, and it's a very privileged position for us to not care about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's good for us that we don't have to care, you know, and that's the reason I start with that is, you know, that's, that's, that's really the threshold question. So even if you're an Orthodox rabbi looking at this, you have to look at it, not just in the context of text, but in the context of human lives and millions of people who are uh, being held back from, you know, finding love in their lives, you know, because of this particular interpretation. And mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to interpret text one way or the other. I mean, it's just a, it's a child's game. It's kind of fun. I like doing it when I was in college, but it's it's BS. It's not authentic. You know, what's authentic is doing it in a way which recognizes the seriousness of the, of the enterprise, right? That there are actually people whose lives literally are at stake. And when we do that, you know, I think we're compelled to sort of ask the second question, which is, all right, how do I, on the one hand, honor all of my values of life and love and justice and equality and all that stuff, uh, and the people who I know and everything that I know about what it is to be a human being, how do I sort of honor that and some fidelity to the text if that's important to me or important to my religious community? And then it gets very easy, right, to do with the, what, what do you do with the verse and the first this is a verse only about men, so that's 50% of the problem. It's mm-hmm. only about, it's basically, according to Rashi, uh, you know, biblical commentator Rashi, it's only about anal sex. It doesn't have to do with any other forms of sexuality. Mm-hmm. So you could conceivably take a hyper-literalist, strict reading of this and just, you know, kind of don't ask, don't tell what gay men are doing in their in their bedrooms. Obviously, it's nothing to do with women. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that, you know, is, is quite broad compared to what it could be, which is to just say, all right, well, this is about a toy box. Right. So unless the anal sex in which I'm engaging is part of a cultic idolatrous ritual, which most of the time it's not, sometimes maybe, but usually it's not. Yeah, usually. You know, usually. Um, tomorrow night, maybe, yes, but not not most of the time. <laughs> um, you know, this just doesn't apply. It's like, you know, the, the prohibition, is. it's as if the prohibition on linen and wool, you know, shot is, which is right. like the same kind of quality of this, not only just said that, but even said, don't wear linen and wool, because that's part of a cultic idolatrous uh, practice, mm-hmm. right? And so if you had, you know, if your wife had a had a dress or something that had linen and wool, and she wasn't planning to worship the goddess Astarte in it, you know, that's just not what that's just not what it covers. Now, I mean, that's not the only way to read this verse. There's a, a hundred ways to read it, but it is a way that sort of answers both of those questions, right? Of of how, why does this matter? And then how do I respect my deep values while holding on to some notion of this text? And that's, you know, having done that work for a few years, it's it's pointless to just go to the text because without the reason to care, no one cares, you know, and there's just no reason to look at it. But I've noticed that when when folks 
you know, generally either the Orthodox Jews or traditional Christians, you know, see the crisis, they get the problem uh, that mm-hmm. the traditional reading uh, has created. Once they get that, they actually really want to find uh, this kind of solution. So I'm, I'm in the business of enabling people to maintain their myths and self-delusions. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's actually one other thing I wanted to ask you about, about this. You know, there's a very evocative image about, because you know the, the Holiness Code you know, sort of wraps, not only wraps up at the end of, of chapter 18, but basically there's this whole business about the land vomiting you out. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, which I, yeah, yeah. And this it, is such a brilliant metaphor, I think, too. It really, you know, you've probably read Mary Douglas, Purity and Danger. Yeah. You know, there really is this very primal fear uh, that I think makes a lot of sense. You know, I think kind of reading... Leviticus, Mary Douglas, and Jonathan Haidt, you know, his book, The Righteous Mind, right. uh, together might be really interesting, you know, that this is, you know, this is found in almost every culture, this kind of notion that there's something that's impure, you know, and I think Jonathan Haidt has these, like, really interesting, you know, examples, uh, you know, like, there's somebody... Um, well, take, somebody take sorry, take two, can you take two steps back for some people who haven't read yeah. the book? I mean, some of your readers, some of your listeners haven't read it. Yeah, so I think my Hayden, mom hasn't read it, so she's like right, probably the okay. only listener out there. Well, it's about to go off the deep end for your mom, so this will be great. Okay. And Jonathan Hayden wrote this book about why, sort of why, what conservative morality is and how liberals can understand it. That's not how he frames it, but that's how I frame it. Okay. And he kind of identifies these six basic moral instincts, which we all have. And some of us really care a lot about some and not about others. So liberals tend to care a lot about avoiding harm. You know, taking care of people, fairness, mm-hmm. right? These are things which, which are, yeah, they're not. It's, it's they're not moral arguments. They're moral instincts, and we just kind of feel them. It feels wrong when they're when they're offended. But traditional cultures, and that includes American conservatives, also have these other ones like respect for authority, mm-hmm. loyalty, and purity. And you know, it's interesting. One of the he makes this as a side point, but he points out, you know, liberals tend to be pretty liberal about sex, but pretty conservative about food, mm-hmm. right? Like most of, most of us progressives are really worried about GMOs and, you know, organic food and stuff like that, right. which really is just, that's the purity instinct, you know, and, and just, and he does these thought experiments, actually they were, they were done in, in sort of questionnaires. Like if, if there was this person and he came across a dead, a corpse and he ate some of it and nobody would ever find out, you know, was that, is that morally wrong? Mm-hmm. And, you know, even liberals, like we kind we might that we, we have to struggle around. Well, uh, we try to invent some sort of reason why it might be wrong. It's like bad for society. But really, I think he's right that we have this moral disgust. And there's also some neuroscientific evidence around this. My, my new book is on meditation and neuroscience. So mm-hmm. I, I'm immersed in that. That actually it's the same centers of the brain that register physical disgust and moral disgust. Right. And that it's actually kind of repurposed. They're meant to do avoid that, right? You see some you see a piece of meat with maggots on it, and thanks to evolution, you know, we're wired to think that's disgusting, don't eat it, right? Right. And that gets repurposed for things which we understand to be morally impure. Which really, you know, again, having hit the road for the uh, LGBT stuff in my in my career is definitely the case. I mean, there are people who are just completely disgusted by homosexuality, like they can't get it out of their heads. And it's really clear that morality and disgust are totally wrapped up one with the other. And I think that thing about like, you know, the land is going to vomit you out um, because of these weird purity violations, which are also moral violations, which, you know, which piss off God. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think, you know, the way I read that from my, you know, liberal postmodernist perspective, like I'm, I'm not interested in like really inhabiting that world, but I am interested in imagining what that world is like. And, and what would it be to really feel like, 
that, you know, there's no germ theory of disease, you know, life expect life is nasty <laughs> and short, you know, things seem really unclear and, and you just better do the right thing or otherwise the land is going to vomit you out. There's going to be drought and stuff. And, and I think that there's something really primal there that I appreciate kind of as poetry, like not as, you know, really ethical reasoning, but right. I, I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate your time uh, and, t- and joining us today to talk, t- joining me today to talk about this. Um, you have a new book coming out? The new book is uh, on, uh, like I said, meditation. So not what we just talked about. It's called Evolving Dharma, Meditation, Buddhism, and the Next Generation of Enlightenment. And it talks about the Jubu thing as well, that kind of uh, Jewish Buddhist phenomenon, and uh, mixes some third-person discussion of where uh, meditation is headed and why it's been mainstreamed, and some first-person accounts of my own experiences along the path. Great. Well, I'll, I'll link to that on the Facebook page and at thenextjew.com. And like I said, I really appreciate your time and your insight on this. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, yeah. Keep up, uh, keep up the provocative work. Thank you. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com. Or you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes Store or at Stitcher Smart Radio or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 30 on Leviticus chapters 20 through 23. Y'all come back now, yeah?